Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail Roto Podcast. I am one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, and you are tuned in to our OITE review series. And in particular, we're going to be talking a little bit about trauma. This will be a continuation from our last episode. We're going to kind of talk some random trauma facts as well as we'll go over open fractures and, you know, which antibiotics to give, some classifications for open fractures. So please enjoy. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, it's a nailed it ortho podcast. We typically go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but this is our OITE review series. So hit that subscribe button and uh, please go and leave us a rating in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to us in. So without further ado. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. So kind of just transitioning to, I guess, just kind of just some random, not random, but some, some general um, general topics for trauma. And say you have a, a pregnant patient, you know, greater than 20 weeks to station comes in to the ED, you know, she was a, you know, polytrauma and she is hypotensive. What are some, what are some easy things that you can do at that point? Uh, yes. The, the famous uh, factoids of the OITE that just want <laughs> to throw you off guard um, yes. and, and things that you're not quite ready for, but just kind of thinking critically about all this stuff, you can figure them out most of the time. Um, so yeah, with a pregnant patient, um, you yeah, obviously you have the weight of the uterus, um, that can uh, displace posteriorly while they're lying flat on their back. So uh, you want to lay them in the left lateral decubitus, meaning that they are laying more on their left side. So placing a bump under their right hip and shoulder um, so that the uterus can shift towards the left side of the body and relieve pressure off of the inferior vena cava, which is on the uh, right side of the abdomen and thorax. Um, a little bit of gen surge for us, for everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, I, I mean, I've seen this down in the in the trauma bay where they're they're not doing that, and um, so just yeah, being able to provide kind of that total care for the patients and and making sure that multiple eyes on the patients are really taken care of. So, um, and then really kind of uh, staying along with this um, uh, kind of just general factoid thing is. Uh, how these patients get affected uh, psychologically and um, uh, do they, in terms of like PTSD, we see that, that yeah. women tend to have higher rates of PTSD and take more sick time uh, at 10 years after their uh, traumatic incident. And I'm not entirely sure what that's attributed to, but um, it's a, it's a testable fact and something that we should make note of kind of similar it's off topic but similar to how uh, women are at a higher risk for ACL ruptures because of their uh, kind of landing biomechanics it, it's just yeah. it is what it is and it's a fact that we need to know um, and then kind of getting away uh, from like high energy trauma which is what we've talked about recently is uh, kind of snake bites and chemical burns and some other stuff we may see that's trauma related but not necessarily high uh, velocity trauma. Yeah. So, I mean, you think, I don't know why, I mean, you think it'd be a little, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be this easy, not this easy, but you know, like the treatment for snake bites is like anti-venom. 
um that's you know that's kind of what the treatment for snake bites is if that's a question hopefully it's an easier one and then you know when we talk about chemical burns you know how you initially want to treat that is you want to irrigate them out really you know you want to irrigate it out very well and then kind of debride it so debride you know see whatever tissue seems vitalized um or you know injured tissue debride out the injured tissue we all know continued devitalized and injured tissue can end up leading to infections a little bit later on down the line um, so definitely irrigating debris those out. And uh, I think speaking on irrigation debridement, that is a, a great transition into let's talking about a little bit about open fractures and the classification system. We all get pimped on. I remember I got pimped yeah. on this as a med student. Um, so can you just kind of, uh, Spencer, go over what the Gastillo-Anderson classification is for open fractures? Uh, yes. So uh, kind of based off of... Uh, Type one, two, and three, and then having the type three being separated into its own A, B, and C uh, subcategories. The um, so the initial uh, kind of study on it on this was really done off of uh, tibia fractures, and this has been kind of my the most difficult thing I've had to really kind of. Uh, deal with in my own mind when talking about this just because we we tend to apply this gastillo classification to pretty much every open fracture uh that we see but yeah. uh the tibia poses a, a its own complications just because it is so it's just right subcutaneous it's very close to the skin there's little soft tissue coverage over that anteromedial aspect and so that's why this makes it a very uh, uh concerning type of injury but all of that aside, um, the Gastillo classification. So type one, we see a small wound, less than one centimeter, typically described as like a poke hole um, and really just minimal contamination, minimal uh, muscle damage and a very simple fracture pattern. Um, moving on, type two is a wound that's bigger than one centimeter, but less than 10 centimeters uh, with moderate soft tissue injury and uh, a kind of a moderate type of uh, fracture pattern that's not so significant that it's segmental comminuted, but is a little bit more than just a, a simple fracture. And then uh, the, the more important ones and the ones that I think are more commonly tested are the type threes where the wound is usually bigger than uh, 10 centimeters, but really does not have to be. It can be that poke hole style, but uh, just knowing that it's uh, a high energy type of wound, there's extensive soft tissue damage, periosteal stripping, it's highly contaminated. Um, and uh, the type A, so, so type three A's, um, you do have adequate tissue uh, that, uh, does not need any flap coverage. It may still require skin graft, but it, the flap is the kind of big uh, differentiating point between an A and a B. And, That's a good distinction. And uh, I've seen a question, I don't know if it was just going through uh, orthobullets or if it was on an OITE, but they talked about a patient needing a skin graft and what what fracture classification was it and it was type 3a uh, because it a skin graft is different than a rotational or a free flap and that's what a type 
3B is, where you still have all of those same things, soft tissue damage, high energy wound, but you have to use a rotational or free flap. And then uh, type 3C is uh, you see a vascular injury that requires vascular repair, regardless of soft tissue injury. So, I mean, this could be a simple fracture pattern, but also has uh, like a popliteal uh, artery uh, disruption or uh, laceration or, or something like that that needs a, a bypass or vascular repair. And we do a lot of this from the ER, but a lot of the, especially the type uh, 3A, B, and C is determined by intraoperative examination. And we don't really know until after that initial debridement uh, what exactly, uh, uh, if we're able to cover it or if we need a flap and plastic surgery input. So um, now that we've kind of gone over all of these, the classification for open fractures, I briefly talked about the antibiotics, but uh, if you want to go into a little bit more detail about those uh, antibiotics and how we should be treating these patients when they hit the door. Yeah, no, that was an excellent review of the Gastelia-Anderson classification. Loved it. Um, but just continuing on, so what antibiotics do we give for these patients that have these open fractures? So our grade ones and grade twos, these are going to be, again, our, our, our typically our open wounds that are less than 10 centimeters. They're going to get a first-generation cephalosporin. And uh, one that, you know, a lot of centers use is Ancef or orthocillin. I don't know if you, if somebody's heard of it like that, but it's, <laughs> it's called ANCEP, you know, first generation cephalosporin. When you get to the grade three, so when you have a, a grade three um, open injury, you also want to give a aminoglycoside or fluoroquinolone. So you want to give your first generation um, cephalosporin and an aminoglycoside or fluoroquinolone. So this may be something like um, ANCEP and gentamicin is a very common one that they may ask about. And you also want, yep. want to make sure that they have an updated tetanus. Now, what about these grade three injuries that have a farm injury? Is there anything in particular you want to give them? And if it is, what are you trying to cover? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm here in central California where agriculture is king. And so we see a lot of these farm injuries. And so a lot of our patients do get uh, penicillin on top of everything else, the first generation cephalosporin aminoglycoside, and it's really to cover the clostridium um, to prevent uh, the uh, kind of clostridial infections, whether that's like perfringens or uh, kind of whatever else. And uh, it's really, uh, we're, we're pretty far away from any salt water or brackish water, but uh, you hear about those. So what else should we be giving them uh, when we're kind of closer to the coast or we get a kind of a flight flight for life in from from the coast yeah well you know the funny thing is the first time i heard brackish water i was like what, what is brackish water i have no <laughs> idea what that means and i had to google it for, for so for those of you that have no had no idea what that is brackish water is uh is water that occurs in a natural environment that has more salinity than fresh water but not as much as seawater so in case you want to know, that's what that is. So, you know, what antibiotics do we give for our patients that are exposed to salt water or brackish water? You know, you want to give a broad spectrum cephalosporin, and you also want to give a tetracycline or a fluoroquinolone. And, you know, that's because patients that have open wounds in these types of uh, environments have higher contamination with organisms such as Vibrio, Pseudomonas, as well as Mycobacterium. So it may be like a third generation cephalosporin, just something broad spectrum. 
a tetracycline, a doxycycline is one that, that I see on um, test a lot as far as, you know, what what's something that you want to give. And again, you want to cover Vibrio, Pseudomonas, and Mycobacterium. Those are some of the common organisms that if you're exposed to this salt water um, that you want to make sure to cover. Now, what about what about patients that have uh, wounds for open fresh water? Yeah, so, I mean, kind of along that same path with the fluoroquinolone, um, but you can also do like a third or fourth uh, generation cephalosporin, like a cephalotitan or a cefepime, uh yeah. to help uh, protect against any bacteria that uh, that likes fresh water. And um, I mean, that's a similar thing that you can even do with a like an open pelvic fracture with a bowel injury as well as add that uh, third generation cephalosporin. So again, that's uh, cephalotitan. Um, I this is not really kind of OITE related, but for a lot of these contaminated wounds, big wounds uh, at our facility, we've really just started doing like a vanxosin or a vanxcephapime to provide mm. just wide spectrum um, and then tailoring as needed. But again, I think for testing purposes, we're not really on that vanxosin or vanxcephapime spectrum. It's still the classic ANCEF or ANCEF plus uh, aminoglycoside and then the other antibiotics that we just talked about. So um, how, how important are these uh, antibiotics to be given? And, <laughs> and uh, is it, is it even important that we give them? I, I don't like who, 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 who came up with this antibiotic? I don't, I don't know, but, but no, the answer in all, in all reality the answer is very yes. You know, just like you said, it's going to be asked, Many times, this is going to be on almost every RIT board, a delay in antibiotics is associated with an increased risk for infection. So as soon as they come through the door, you want to make sure that they get their IV antibiotics. So they come through with an open fracture, that is. Now, what is the kind of treatment, you know, for an open fracture that comes through the door generally? Uh, yep. Antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics. And then uh, we're looking at uh, irrigation and debridement and really taking into account that uh, debridement. I mean, we can run saline through a wound all we want, but it's at that initial debridement, you really wanna make sure that you are taking out all devitalized tissue that you can. You are doing a good job of rongeuring or curating the bony uh, ends that were exposed to the environment. And then um, bony stabilization. And a lot of this, because of the open nature of it, uh, for, type ones and twos, you may be able to get away with uh, definitive fixation uh, initially, but uh, for the grade three uh, or type three opens, um, we're looking at kind of an X fix to stay out of the zone of injury and to make sure that um, we can let the tissues declare themselves a bit while we uh, treat them with further antibiotics. And uh, let's say, uh, open fracture comes in at at 2 a.m. or so would you uh would you necessarily go in uh saying there's no vascular injury or compartment syndrome would you would you go in at, at 2 a.m. to to get fix this or uh do you think it's okay to kind of wait a little bit yeah i think back in the in the olden days the thought process was like if it comes in that night you you go to the OR, you know, that night and get it done. You know, just like you said, if it comes in at two, you're in there at three. And I think that's how they used to do it. But now I know that there's a lot of evidence that supports that 
you should be able to at least get to these um, these uh, open fractures within 12 to 24 hours. So an IND should be performed within 12 to 24 hours in these patients with uh, the open fractures. So that you know anything within that time frame is going to be uh, appropriate. Now, just kind of still going along the lines of these open fractures, is there any benefit to irrigate with pulsatile lavage? You know. You would think that there is because of how we kind of clean the rest of our body or our cars that you would want to use some sort of kind of high powered washer. Um, but really just a saline to gravity and um, you don't even have to add anything into that saline. It's There's really been proven no difference if you add like a bacitracin to the saline. And even uh, they used to add like Castile soap yeah, uh, thinking that that would help uh, kind of clean out the tissues, but that in fact has led to uh, higher reoperations and uh, or a higher rate of reoperation. So um, it's really just getting that three liter bag of normal saline hung uh, so that uh, you can provide a nice gentle uh, irrigation to the wound while you debride all the uh, devitalized tissue and. Uh, when you had these uh, grade three uh, injuries and you, let's say you've cleaned everything out, you've debrided it, you're happy. Um, how, how soon are you uh, trying to close these wounds up? Well, I think, you know, a lot for these patients that have these, um, you know, these open wounds, early coverage is best, right? So early co coverage is anything within, you know, within five days or, or once the zone of injury is defined, you know, because late coverage is, has been shown to kind of increase some of your complication weight, meaning late coverage more than 10 days or so. So you definitely want to have early coverage, if you can, um, for these patients that have the, these open wounds. Early coverage may be meaning a, a skin graft, like you were talking about a little bit earlier, maybe a soft tissue flap with our plastic surgery colleagues. So that is um, definitely something to keep in mind. And speaking of soft tissue flaps what are just just so we know like what are just some different types of soft tissue flaps that are generally used for well for wound coverage and tibia shaft fractures i know it depends on where the the fracture is so maybe you can kind of let us know what flap is commonly used for which part of the tibia yeah so uh actually i i skipped over something in our notes here but uh uh one quick thing um do not get wound cultures at your uh, first IND. We know that it's a contaminated wound. We know that it's it's going to have uh, some bacteria in it. So really, it's just about getting that debridement done, but not taking wound cultures because you could end up treating the patients with uh, too many antibiotics rather than uh, uh, the right amount. So, um, but true. back to the uh, soft tissue flaps. Um, uh, the tibia, although it has very poor uh, soft tissue coverage over that enteromedial aspect, like we talked about before. Uh, the good news is that it does have a very robust musculature posteriorly. And so we can rely a lot on the uh, gastrox uh, to provide some coverage for the uh, proximal third. Uh, it's just really a rotational flap uh, that our uh, plastic surgery colleagues are able to uh, uh, kind of do on a more routine basis. And then uh, for the middle third, um, you have a nice robust soleus uh, back there right on the uh, posterior portion of the tibia. 
And then uh, the unfortunate part is as we get down to the ankle and the distal third of the tibia, because of very little um, muscle belly, uh, and you just have a lot of uh, traversing uh, tendons in that area, you do most likely need uh, some, sign of, some kind of free tissue transfer like a, a ALT or a latissimus uh, uh, fascial cutaneous flap for those. Um, and then uh, now that I mean, we know how to cover these, um, let's say they get into a bad motorcycle crash or, or climbing accident or something, they come in and they, they seem to be <laughs> missing some bone or there is a lot of devitalized bone that you have to debride out of the uh, wound. Um, what are we doing with these bone defects and how do we manage those? Yeah, so there are a couple different ways to manage these, you know, open fractures with these big defects. One is kind of a, the masculate technique or otherwise known as the induced membrane technique, um, which I'll get a little bit more into here in a second. Other can be like distracting osteogenesis. This is the one where you hear, you know, there may be an X fixed place that in that bone grows, I think at a millimeter or so a day. So, the, you know, you slowly crank out and, and, and move the bones away from each other. And then the bone fills in that gap at a, at a, at a rate of again, one millimeter a day. And then the next one's bone transport. And I think this is more, you know, mostly used for like those, you know, limb deformities where this is maybe somebody that has a, um, a, just like we said, a bone defect and distally or a little bit further down, you may do an osteotomy and move the bone. So you're actually transporting the bone and then you kind of get distraction osteogenesis that lays down new bone in between those gaps. But I want to spend a little bit more time on the masculate technique or the kind of the induced membrane technique. And so what this is, it's a two-stage technique that can handle, that handles defects up to even more than 20, 20 centimeters in, in length. And the two stages are the first stage, you kind of have a polymethyl methacrylate spacer. Say that three times as fast as, <laughs> as you can. But anyways, <laughs> polymethyl methacrylate spacer, placed in the defect. And what this does, it, it produces a bioactive membrane. So you, you'll probably, you know, you keep that there for a couple of weeks and then you bring them back and you take out that, that, that spacer, that, you know, that polymethyl methacrylate spacer and you put, um, you put, Cancellus autograft in there. So the, the, the thought process is, is that spacer, it allows that bioactive membrane to form. Then you remove that spacer, put your graft in there, and then that membrane is going to prevent the resorption of that autograft. And that's a, I know that's commonly used, or at least I definitely see it commonly tested in patients that have like, you know, open both bone form fractures with large segmental defects of the radius. Um, yep. I know that's a, that's, a, that's a time where it's definitely used a lot. So um, just, just moving forward, one of the big things of, of orthopedics uh, that you get consulted for when they say this, you have to go, you know, you got to go see this type of a consult, uh, is compartment syndrome. And so can you kind of just break down kind of the, just the pathophysiology behind compartment syndrome? This is something everybody needs to know about and, and kind of how does it happen or how does it evolve? And then after that, we can get into some of the symptoms. Yeah, I mean, uh intuitively we all kind of know what compartment syndrome is and we're like oh yeah it's a swelling of the uh muscle bellies within the fascial compartments the fascia prevents uh excess swelling and so then you start to swell within a confined space but um it wasn't until like kind of a, a year or two in that i really read about and understood how this compartment syndrome 
forms and how it develops in these patients. So um, you have to have your traumatic insult. Uh, then you get the muscle swelling as just a result of the kind of inflammatory process. You get the edema, you get the cytokines and a lot of the extra uh, fluid coming into the muscle bellies. And because of the fascia surrounding it, you, it'll, it'll swell up to a certain point and then you reach a, a, a constant volume where then the compartment pressure has to increase. And uh, what happens is that compartment pressure will increase past the uh, venous pressures uh, that are trying to exit and you get a closing down of the venous outflow but the arterial inflow remains unchanged. And this was where I was getting very confused. I thought it was more of a kind of a muscle infarct situation rather yeah. than a decreased outflow. Because if you really think about it, how we measure the pressures, the, the pressures are really not that high. I mean, let's say it's 50 millimeters of mercury for a compartment pressure, which is still very high, but the uh, systolic arterial pressures are usually for a resuscitated patient are over a hundred. So the arterial flow is un, unimpeded. And so, uh, because of this decreased venous outflow, um, you get this just kind of, kind of traffic jam of fluid happening that further increases the pressure. So you get a bunch of arterial inflow and high pressures from the arterial inflow and decreased outflow that then just leads to more muscle injury, more swelling. And it's just kind of this vicious cycle uh, that keeps repeating itself until um, we release those compartments. And uh, uh, if you want to briefly kind of go over the, uh, those classic uh, P's of uh, compartment syndrome uh, that we kind of learned from day one of med school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that, uh, that traffic jam. I just like picture a, a bunch of veins as having a traffic jam and yeah. <laughs> decreasing the outflow. So I love that, that, um, that metaphor right there, but yeah, no. So just, just moving forward on the signs of compartment syndrome. So, you know, the main thing is compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. You know, this is, you know, you gotta use your clinical judgment. And the number one thing most common that you will see is pain out of proportion. Um, so, you know, this is pain with passive range of motion out of proportion for what you expect that patient to have. Okay. Some of the other P's are paresthesis, but that, you know, that's going to be a little bit later on. Um, motor deficits is later on as well as pulselessness is later on. So the main thing that you want to be on the lookout for is pain out of proportion. This means you passively move their fingers or you passively flex and extend their, their toes and they jump up in pain out of, you know, kind of out of what you would expect. Um, and, and, and know that is the main thing. But how do you how do you test for compartment syndrome, right? So you, that you know that's the main thing, I guess you know in a, in a in a patient that can give you some feedback. But for say for example, the patient says in a coma that you feel their compartments, and you're like, oh, that feels really tense. Um, how do you test for compartment syndrome? Yeah, so it, at, on some level, it would still be a clinical diagnosis because, like you just said, I mean if you are comparing the one extremity to the contralateral extremity and you feel one that is a lot more uh, full and tense and tight than the other side, some would argue that you've kind of made the diagnosis and it would be better off to just release compartments rather than not um, in an obtunded patient. But uh, things that we're looking for on the OITE and uh, things you can get tested on are, are 
actually measuring the intracompartmental pressure using a striker needle and uh, not going to go over really how to use a striker needle just because the instructions should be provided at the hospital. <laughs> but right. um, um, you're looking for uh, intracompartmental pressure that is within 30 millimeters of mercury from uh, their diastolic uh, pressure. And uh, if it's uh, greater than uh, or if it's within 30 of their diastolic, you are concerned about uh, compartment syndrome, but if it's greater than 30, if it's a lot less than their uh, diastolic pressures, meaning their return flow, uh, then that you're a little bit less concerned, but um, you wanna make sure that you are measuring these pressures before they go under general anesthesia. And that can be tough sometimes because if they show up in the trauma bay and they're doing rapid sequence, uh, anesthesia and uh, intubation, RSI, um, you, you want to do your best to get those uh, pressures done because once they give the anesthetics, the diastolic pressure can drop an average of about 18 millimeters of mercury and you can get false measurements of that uh, uh, compartment. Yeah, love it. But uh, yeah, I some sometimes that... Uh, uh, greater than 30, less than 30 within the diastolic can, uh, confuse me a bit. So hopefully I said all of that stuff, right. But oh, you, you did like, like, for example, if, if the patient's uh, blood pressure is like 90 over 60 and you're worried about compartment syndrome and you check the intracompartmental pressure and it's 40 millimeters of mercury, that means it's positive because it's within that, like 30 millimeters of mercury. It's, it's like within the diastolic pressure. The diastolic pressure is 60 <laughs> and the intercompartmental pressure is 40. It's within that 30 millimeters of mercury that like you have that could be lower than it. So, Excellent. yeah, yeah. Just it kind of takes a you have to take a little step back sometimes and say, wait, am I do I want to be <laughs> less than or greater than 30? Yeah. But yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Um, and then uh I guess kind of one one other uh, big thing and just kind of the general concepts of orthopedic trauma is uh, so we've we've gone over these open fractures and especially these grade threes that we don't usually close on initial uh, presentation or initial uh, surgery uh, we most likely place like a wound vac so if you uh, want to kind of go over. Uh, how these uh, kind of negative pressure uh, wound therapy uh, machines work and the benefits they provide. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, the, whoever invented WoundVac, genius, you know, it has so many uses used across multiple hospitals all over the world. But anyway, so how these negative pressure wound therapy devices work is, you know, what it is, is it, it removes excess interstitial fluid, right? So it removes excess interstitial fluid, it promotes the local uh, vascularity, and it increases granulation tissue formation. But one of the things that it does not do that, that can be confusing, it does not decrease bacteria, okay? But so what these, what these things do, again, they, they increase the granulation tissue, and it can also help reduce deep infections and open tibia fractures. So in open tibia fractures, negative pressure wound therapy helps reduce deep infections. Um, 
So in, in when these are used in cases where there are fasciotomies, there is been noticed to have a higher rate of wound closure and increased wound perfusion uh, when you use negative pressure wound therapy. And it also can help decrease wound dehiscence and infections with their use in high-risk surgery, for example. So if you may use this in if you're doing a, a tibial plateau fracture, or a pilon fracture, or a calcaneus fracture, these are uh, areas you know where the soft tissue management is very important, and and you want to make sure the wounds heal. So these you know negative pressure wound therapies help decrease decrease you know the amount of, of wound dehiscence and, and infections in, in in patients that have that are undergoing these high risk surgeries. And a couple articles you can read on if you want to read some more about it is one is called negative pressure wound therapy reduces deep infection rate in open tibia fractures. That is literally the name of the article um, by Dr. Martin Blum. And another article is called incisional negative pressure wound therapy after high risk lower extremity fractures. And that'll talk to you a little bit more about you know, the, the use of uh, wound vaccine, decreasing wound dehiscence and infection with our high risk surgeries. So I think that is it for our basic trauma talk or basic trauma review. Uh, this was our first one. I think it went well, Spencer. What do you think? I, I think this was, this was pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. It's just kind of this back and forth discussion here and kind of adding in a little bit of kind of real world applications along with the OITE review, I think is a pretty beneficial so everybody we appreciate you for listening please again subscribe to the podcast and tune into our next uh, our next talk we'll be talking about upper extremity uh, trauma and we'll go over some high yield topics thank you all for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it and learned some stuff about uh, trauma about open fractures and kind of different uh some random facts please hit that subscribe button please go leave us a review and if you are interested or want early access to some of the podcast companion books that we may release go and click the link in the description and fill in your information and we will reach out to you and keep you updated so until next time